The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. We're going to read the 109th Psalm. It's a little long, but we're going to read it. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread, also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder his labor." Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be plotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth, because he did not remember to show mercy." but persecuted the poor and needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come to him. And he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually." Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. But you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. I also have become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. Oh, save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand, that you, Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. Here we go. Um, Leviticus 10, verses 8 through 20 is our sermon today. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons who were left, take the grain offering that remains of the offerings made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar for it is most holy." You shall eat it in the holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord, for so I have been commanded. The breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your son's due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to the Lord as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded. 
Verse 16, then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was, burned up. Then he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy? And God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. Verse 19, and Aaron said to Moses, look this day, they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So Moses, when Moses heard that, he was content. Before I get into my comments on the sermon here, I want to go ahead and read you a couple of verses out of the Bible. There's a reason why I'm doing this. Romans chapter 10 It says, uh, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How do you remember that? 10-4, A-OK, Christ is the end of the law, okay? I want to take you now to Colossians 2, verse 14, which says this. Philippians, Colossians 2, 14. I'm going to go back to 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. What are the sacrifices that we're going through in the Old Testament for? They're trespass offerings and sin offerings. And he's forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the writing of the requirements. What is he talking about there? The law of Moses that was against us and which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What happened on the cross? Jesus died. The law died on the cross. Everybody got that? This is something everybody needs to be reminded of again and again and again. The law is done. It is over. Hebrews, I'm going to take you to verse 7, 12. For the priesthood, what are we looking at in the book of Leviticus right now? the priesthood, the ordination of Aaron and his sons. For the priesthood being changed, was it changed? Yes, Christ is our new high priest. He's the only high priest. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. The law is gone. No more law, okay? Next one, Hebrews 7.18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, annulling of the law, because of its weakness and its un profitableness and then there comes in the new law in its place okay we're going to go on hebrews 8 13 in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete what does obsolete mean done it's done okay the first meaning the first covenant the law of moses is done and one more, Hebrews 10, verse 9. Then he said, Behold, this is Jesus speaking, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second. Okay? I know that I've said that in every Bible study. I say it all the time, but it can never be said enough. The law is done. You are going to come across somebody at some point, who is going to tell you, why aren't you observing the law of Moses? And they're going to take verses out of context, and unless you know where to go to have these verses to defend, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm not observing the law of Moses. I'm going to go to hell. Christ is the only thing that can get you to heaven. The only thing. The law of Moses cannot do it. We're going to see that today. And this is entitled Absolute Zero. The last few verses of this chapter, which I read, are almost always wholly misunderstood by scholars, and their comments are thus completely wrong. You're going to see this. I think the reason why this is the case is because it stems from a human desire to prove that we can somehow merit a favorable opinion from God, even when we completely blow what we're doing. In other words, it comes back to works-based salvation, even by those who claim they have no works which merit their salvation. Somehow, deep inside of us, we try to find good, even despite that which is completely bad. Can you name two things which are impossible for us to do as humans? Well, before you go on, there are certainly a lot of things that are impossible. Making me handsome is certainly beyond the realm of possibility. 
But that's not what I'm talking about. What are some scientific things which are literally impossible for us to do? I'll give you one right now. It's right over there on the board. Two of them are attaining the speed of light and cooling to absolute zero. Both face the identical problem. Getting to the speed of light requires an infinite amount of work or energy in order to overcome the mass which is being propelled forward. Getting down to absolute zero requires extracting an infinite amount of heat from the thing being cooled. Both of these are impossible. Spiritually, what is something impossible for us to do? Well, if you know even basic theology, you know that there is nothing Nothing that you can actively do to please God in order to be saved. No matter how much you do, just like going the speed of light, you can never overcome the mass of the sin that you have in you. It's simply not possible. And the reason why is because we can never get ourselves to the spiritual state of absolute zero sin. If you've been paying attention to the Leviticus sermons, you know that man is born in sin. It is a part of his very nature. If we equate the heat that we need to extract in order to reach absolute zero to the sin that we need to extract in order to reach absolute perfection, we have a great parallel. The sin in us is there. It can't be taken away. And we of ourselves can never fully extract it. And the law of Moses, which was to be our sin extractor, simply wasn't up to the task. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 5, it's verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for his sins. Now, speaking of the high priest sacrificing for his own sins, the law says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 18, verse 5. Woohoo! The sin extractor is given. The law of Moses says that if we can do the things of the law, then we will live. Strap on your sin extractor, set it to eternal life mode. It is a snap, I tell you. Well, maybe not. Aaron's words to Moses in verse 19 shows us that there is a snag in the snap. In verse 20, we read that Moses was content with Aaron's words, but if he stopped, If he sat down and if he contemplated the words Aaron spoke, he probably would have broken down in tears and just said, Lord, take me now. Or maybe he would have said what King Solomon said 500 years later. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? The sin infection is too deep, the sin extractor is ineffective, and man remains separated from his infinitely glorious Heavenly Father. What a sad state of affairs. But thanks be to God for the true sin extractor. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who can take away sin. The law was given to show us what was impossible. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Yupperino. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a word from the Lord to Aaron. It's verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Vedaber Yehovah el aharon lemor, and spoke Yehovah unto Aaron, saying, Verse 8, is one which is unique in all of Scripture. The Lord speaks directly to Aaron alone. In Exodus 7, verse 8, and 12, verse 1, the Lord spoke to both Moses and Aaron. This will occur again several times in Leviticus and Numbers. But in this verse alone, the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. It is something which concerns him and the priesthood, and it is an order which is therefore directed solely to him. It is also an advanced indication that what has just occurred in the death of his sons is directly related to what will now be said. The two are being connected together. Though it is merely conjecture that this is so, it is sound conjecture. Nearly one half of the priesthood has been destroyed by the fire of the Lord. Those remaining have been told that they are not to mourn over what occurred. 
And because of these things, there could be the assumption on their part that the Lord is displeased with the newly established priesthood. They could also assume that they will all die before the Lord over the slightest infraction. But this is not so. The law of the sin offering was given, and the first sacrifice in that law was specifically for the high priest who had sinned. Therefore, they could rest assured that not all infractions would lead to death. With the Lord's words being spoken directly to Aaron, there is an assurance that what has happened is not the standard as long as the holiness of the Lord was not violated by their actions. However, if the Lord was truly displeased with the priests, they could expect judgment. And so the Lord now speaks to Aaron with a command to him and those who issue from him who will minister as priests. These words will keep the priests from a sad repeat of what has occurred in the deaths of Nadav and Avihu. Verse 9, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. Yayin veshachar al-tashet, wine and super strong drink, no drink. The word yayin or wine is explained in this and other passages, such as when it was introduced in Genesis 9, verse 21, when Noah got drunk as fermented wine with an alcohol content. The word shahar is introduced into scripture here, and it indicates a beverage with a very high alcohol content, blinko juice. If one were to stop with the first few words of this verse, as many seem to enjoy doing when citing their aversion to people drinking alcohol, they might be making a case for no person ever drinking. But the words do not stop with do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. They go on to a further explanation. You, nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting. There is a specific group who are named and a set time when the prohibition is given. Further, along with the priests, during their conduct of their duties, the only other time that alcohol is prohibited in the entire Bible is in the rules for the Nazarite vow found in Numbers chapter 6. People like Samson and John the Baptist were considered as Nazarites from birth, and thus the prohibition extended to them. At all other times, no such prohibition exists, and the drinking of wine and shahar are condoned throughout Scripture as long as it does not lead to brawling, addiction, and the like. One time when their consumption is specifically stated as a good thing is in the law of the tithe, which is found in Deuteronomy. Here's what it says. It's a little long, but I want to read you the whole section. You shall surely tithe all of the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil. What do you do with your tithe? Eat it. It's your tithe. You eat it. Have you ever heard a church tell you that before? They don't, right? Okay, he goes on. Of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. You take all of the stuff that you've grown, all of your fruit and all of your grain and everything, exchange it for money because you can't carry it all. The Lord has blessed you so much, right? So you exchange it for money, take the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or for wine or similar drink. That's yayin or shachar, those two words that are found right here. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. So, just to not stop right there, you eat your tithe two years under the Old Testament system, and on the third year, you give it all away. Okay? That is what Old Testament tithing says. Nobody teaches that, but that is what the Bible says. And tithing is a precept under which, which uh, testament? The Old Testament. It is set aside in Christ. We went through that at the beginning of the sermon. You are not required to tithe. If you want to give, give as you have been blessed, according to what Paul says, okay? That is up to you. It is between you and the Lord. And if you want to have, when you are in Jerusalem, wine or Blinko drink, the Lord says go for it, okay? I just want to pull punches where punches need to be pulled, and I want to be faithful to this word of God, 
I'm not one of these people that will take something and say, you shouldn't do this because I have a presupposition about that particular issue. In the New Testament, Paul says the following to the saints at Corinth. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. And he means literally drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. There Paul doesn't tell them not to drink alcohol. Instead, he tells them that if they want to do so, the word that he uses indicates this, to not do so at the Lord's Supper, but rather just go do it at home. The ceremony was to be conducted with respect. Paul's prohibition to Timothy and Titus concerning elders not being given to wine uses a word which indicates being quarrelsome over wine, okay? And thus it would be somebody like an abusive brawler or a drunk. It cannot be seen as a prohibition against any consumption, as he tells Timothy that it's A-OK elsewhere. This is not my attempt here to change anyone's mind on whether they will drink or whether they will not drink. Rather, it is an analysis which is necessary from time to time, like everything else in Scripture, to avoid the unbiblical and legalistic rules which are constantly pounded into believers' heads. Whether it is the law of the tithe, which I went over with you, or the law of alcohol for the priests at the sanctuary, there is a context which needs to be considered and not carried beyond that context. Verse 9 continues, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Hukat olam le doro techem. Statute forever to your generations. The prohibition is only for the times that the priests were engaged in their official duties, but it was for all times henceforth. If a priest were to drink, he was expected to not do so when ministering before the Lord. Until the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of the law through his work, the statute was to be adhered to by all of Aaron's sons in their official duties. Verse 10, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean. Though perfectly understandable, the verse here is not well translated. Each noun is actually preceded by a definite article. It should say that you may distinguish between the holy and the unholy and between the unclean and the pure. There are definite and set categories being described. One of those categories is seen for the first time in scripture, whole or unholy. It will be used only seven times, once here in Leviticus, twice in 1 Samuel, and all of the rest of them will be in the book of Ezekiel. It refers to that which is ordinary rather than holy. The verse is given to show the importance of not being inebriated when performing the duties of a priest. Again, what is implied is that Nadav and Avihu failed to do this, and it cost them their lives. What is rather sad are the countless, countless comments concerning alcohol by scholars which are tied into this verse, which insist at the expense of all of the rest of the body of Scripture on the prohibition of drinking for either some or all believers. It is inappropriate to insert personal biases into scripture to form a doctrine about a matter. That is called eisogesis. It means inserting what you believe into the Bible. When you read the Bible, you are to practice exegesis, drawing out, ek, out, like exit. Think of the word exit. You are to draw out of the Bible what it is telling you. Never take what you believe and put it into the word. Don't do that. Verse 11, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. What is peculiar to me is to see how almost all translations, which did a very good job in verse 10, turn around and do a marginal job with verse 11 and vice versa. The New King James Version blew the last verse. They left off all the definite articles, but they perfectly translate this verse, even to the term by the hand of Moses. It is an exact translation showing that when the Lord spoke to Moses, he carefully recorded by hand everything he heard. The term bayad, or by the hand, is an idiom which indicates authority or capability to accomplish. This is what is seen in the words as they are used here by Moses. The inspiration of scripture is exactingly implied in these words. The Lord spoke and Moses' hand responded accordingly. As far as this verse, the prohibition of the priests drinking while serving is further explained here. 
It is because they were to be instructors of the people concerning the law. If they were drunk while on duty, they would be ineffective teachers. But this is the Lord's word, received directly by the hand of Moses, and therefore they were to treat its instruction as a holy duty. The teaching of the priests is noted in Malachi chapter 2 with these words. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. However, throughout the years, the priests are seen to have been negligent and even failures at the task to which they were called. This is seen, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 22. He says there, her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy, nor have they known the difference between the unclean and the clean. Because of the failure of the prophets, the priests, and the kings of Israel to perform their duties in the holy manner to which they were called, the people fell away and eventually were judged for having completely left the way of the Lord. Do not imbibe while attending to your station. Not wine or something stronger shall you at that time partake. You are the instructors of Israel, your nation, and so fermented drink you shall forsake. That which is holy and that which is unholy do not mix. That which is unclean and that which is pure you shall separate. If you are drunk, how can you other people's problems fix? Only greater problems will you create. Be holy as I am holy. This I am instructing you. Tend to your duties with that always on your mind. To your tasks, you shall be faithful and you shall be true. Carefully execute the duties you have been assigned. Our second thought today is obedience to the law. It's verses 12 through 15. Verse 12. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons who were left. As a reminder, the four names given in this verse mean Moses, he who draws out, Aaron, very high, Eliezer, God has helped, and Ithamar means land of palms, palms being a symbol of uprightness. Moses speaks to Aaron and to his two sons who remain with explicit instructions. By specifically naming Eliezer and Ithamar, and in using this term, ha-notarim, or the remaining, it is showing us that Moses does not want any of the others in his family to make a similar mistake and also die before the Lord. Verse 12 going on, take the grain offering that remains of the offerings made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. Despite what happened with the two oldest sons, they were still to continue with the rites of the final day of ordination. This included eating the most holy grain offering. Moses' instructions now have already been given to the priests, but he is ensuring that they are fully aware of the need to continue through with their duties. Regardless of what else has taken place among them, they need to do this. This is the grain offering of the people noted in verse 917. It was considered most holy, and so it had to be consumed within the courtyard, and it could only be eaten by the designated priests. Verse 13, you shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord, for so I have been commanded. Because the grain offering was most holy, it could not be taken outside of the courtyard, nor could it be eaten by anyone else. It was the due of the priests by a statute, and therefore it had to be treated in accordance with the command given to Moses. Verse 14, the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you. These were the offerings of the people mentioned in verse 9, 18 through 21. As they were not most holy, they could be eaten anywhere in the camp as long as it was a clean place, meaning where there was nothing defiled. Chapter 7 showed that these portions of the offerings were given for the maintenance of the priests and their families. This included even the daughters of the priests as long as they were unmarried, widows, or divorced. However, if they were married, they were to be cared for by their husband's house. Verse 14 continues, For they are your due and your son's due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel. As I said, this was recorded in the law of the peace offerings in chapter 7. There it said this, For the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering I have taken from the children of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, and I have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons from the children of Israel by a statute forever. 
In order to sustain the priests, these portions of the offerings were set aside and consecrated for them alone. Moses is reminding them of this and ensuring that the meat of these portions is properly tended to so that no other negative occurrences result. Verse 15, the thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering, they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. The word they in this verse, as in they shall bring with the offerings, is not speaking of the priests, but of the people of Israel. When the people of Israel brought their offerings, they would include the heaved thigh and the raised breast along with all of the other fat. This was a part of the rite of these offerings, and Moses is reminding them that once such an offering was made, the thigh and the breast would then belong to them. This has been explained before, but the breast, or chazeh, comes from chazah, which means to see, because it is the part of the animal that is most seen when looking at the front of the animal. That, in turn, comes from a root which indicates to gaze at and to mentally perceive, as if in a vision. The shulk, or thigh, can actually mean the thigh, the shoulder, the hip, or the leg. It comes from a word meaning to overflow, and thus it means abundant. And so it is the abundant area of the meat on any appendage. The right thigh was set aside as the priest's part. This signifies the honorable side, but it further reflects the power and the strength of the animal. Of these parts, the breast was offered as a tenufah, or wave offering, whereas the right thigh was offered as a terumah, or a heave offering. The terumah comes from the word rum, which means to be high or exalted. Thus, one can see the idea of something being offered up, like an ablation. The breast, which indicates seeing and vision, and thus the acquisition of wisdom, is waved in acknowledgement of God's omnipresence. And the right thigh, which indicates strength and honor, is lifted in acknowledgement of God's omnipotence. Both then speak of Christ's mediatorial abilities, which are acknowledged in the waving and the heaving of these different parts. He is the wisdom and power of God for his people and the one from whom all knowledge and all strength is derived. This is why these parts were given to the priests. And this is why Moses is, once again, being very specific concerning these offerings. The priests were the mediators between the people and the Lord. Jesus is our one final mediator between God and man. Moses is carefully ensuring that the typology is not violated by the actions of Aaron or his sons because it would then violate the picture of the fulfillment of the typology which is seen in Jesus Christ. Verse 15 continues, And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded. These parts, which in type look forward to Christ's greater ministry, were given to Aaron and his sons as a statute for as long as the law of Moses was in effect. As the priesthood of Aaron was assigned the priestly duties of this law, they were to receive these benefits of their priesthood until such time as the law itself was annulled. This occurred when Christ shed his blood in fulfillment of the law and in the initiation of the new covenant. A statute forever throughout your generations. This is how it shall be from now on. Though will rise and fall many surrounding nations, you shall continue until this law is gone. Until the time it is fulfilled and thus taken away, you shall continue on as I am instructing you. The requirements must be met from day to day until it is fulfilled and along comes something new. And that day will come, be sure of that in your heart, but it will not be because of you or one of your sons. From another tribe of Israel will come a brand new start, and those who follow him will be his chosen ones." I will send the Redeemer, and he will finally take away all of these statutes, which I give you today. Our third thought is the sin problem. It's verses 16 through 20. Verse 16, then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was, burned up. These final verses bring in the importance of paying attention to what occurs with the blood of each offering, and what is to happen to that offering after the ritual of blood is complete. Each offering was to be handled in a unique way, which is particular to the requirements which are set. This sin offering is no different, and Moses knew that. And so the Hebrew reads, Darosh, Darash, Moshe, investigating, Moses investigated. As there was a set procedure to be followed, and as he did not see that it was followed, he made a very careful investigation into the matter. 
There had been enough death for one day, and he didn't want to see more. The inquiry here is concerning the flesh of the sin offering, which was presented on behalf of the nation for the eighth day of the ordination. It was the people's offering noted in verse 915. The blood rite for that offering was conducted at the altar of burnt offering. The blood was not taken inside the holy place, and it was also not for Aaron's sin, but for that of the congregation. Therefore, the meat of the offering was to have been eaten by the priests, not burned up. But that is just what happened to it. Some assume, and this is where scholars start getting it wrong, they assume the reason why is because they were grieved at the loss of their brothers and simply had no desire to eat it. But nobody except the priests was allowed to eat the meat of this offering, and so to keep it from being corrupt, or so that it might not be inadvertently eaten by someone else, they burned it up on the altar. Verse 16 continues, And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Moses singles out the sons of Aaron for his anger. This tells us that it was they who burned up the meat on the altar. He had investigated, and the investigation pointed to them. If Aaron had participated in it, he would have included him in the rebuke as well. There is no doubt about it. They had actually violated a command of the Lord and had aggravated the situation even more. This is why, once again, the term ha-notarim, or the remaining, is used concerning these two sons. The fact that they didn't die shows that they should have been even more attentive to their duties than ever before. They were not, and Moses is more than displeased with them because of it. It appears that the sons readily assumed that their eating this meat or burning it up on the altar was an insignificant difference. However, they will now be corrected on a very fine point of the law. Verse 17, why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place since it is most holy and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? The error of the sons of Aaron was not perceiving that their eating of the sin offering actually had more significance than merely being something that they could eat as a graciously offered meal, something that they could accept or reject at will. In the eating of the sin offering, they actually bore the guilt of the congregation, thus making atonement for them. The blood was never taken into the holy place. If that had happened, then the animal would have been handled in a different way. It would have been taken outside the camp and burned out there. But the blood had merely been cast upon the altar of burnt offering. In the eating of the flesh, they therefore actually took the sin of the congregation upon themselves for the purpose of canceling it or making expiation for it. This is what is symbolically intended in eating that meat. This is described by the scholar Kyle. He says this, This effect or signification could only be ascribed to the eating by its being regarded as an incorporation of the victim laden with sin, meaning the bull, which has had the sin transferred to it. They are now to eat it and incorporate it into their bodies, whereby the priests actually took away the sin by virtue of the holiness and sanctifying power belonging to their office and not merely declared it removed. The importance of this picture is realized in what Christ did for us. First, John the Baptist, and then Isaiah exactingly described the work of the Lord, showing that what we are looking at here, way, way back in the book of Leviticus, is merely a shadow of the reality which lay ahead in Christ's marvelous work. Here's what John says in John 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here Christ Jesus is said to be the sacrifice, the Lamb. The sin of the people of Israel was placed upon an innocent animal that would bear their sin. From there, the sin was then placed upon the priest who mediated between the people and God. In eating the flesh, they then took on the guilt which had been passed to the animal. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice, but guess what? He is also the mediating priest. 
he fulfilled both roles. And so they had to eat that meat in order to fit the typology of Christ. From there, this sin was completely atoned for through the mediator's duties. In this, the words of Jesus concerning defilement are more readily understood from a passage in Mark chapter 7, which everybody gets wrong. Here's what we read. Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him, but it does not enter into his heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods? And he said, what comes out of a man That is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within a man and defile a man. You might ask, how can the priest picturing Christ eat the sin-bearing animal and not take on its sin in a final way, thus being forever separated from God? I was actually emailed this question by a faithful viewer not too long ago. If Christ took on our sin, becoming sin for us, as the Bible says he did, then how could he have been resurrected? The wages of sin is death, and he bore our sin. The answer is because the priest is already acceptable because of his ordained position. In consuming something from outside, he cannot become defiled. Instead, it passes through him and it is purified. The priest symbolically consumed all of the evil things which came out of the nation of Israel and purified them. This is exactly what Jesus is speaking of because this is exactly what Jesus did. He bore upon himself all of the sin of the world, but because he was already pure and ordained by God for the task, the defilement could not cause him to become defiled. Instead, it was purified and eliminated through his work, a work which was accomplished, as the verse says, lifne Yehovah, or in the face of Yehovah. Jesus was actually speaking to the people of priestly matters in the book of Mark chapter 7, because he is the one true and final high priest of God. The sons of Aaron had missed the typology, and therefore they had missed the picture of Christ's work on behalf of the people. Moses continues to explain this. Verse 18, See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. Two different things are intended with the word holy in this verse. The first is speaking of the blood being brought into the holy place within the tent of meeting. This did not happen with this sacrifice, and therefore the meat was to be eaten, not burned up. The place where it was to be eaten is in a holy place, meaning within the sanctuary, but not within the holy place of the tent of meeting. For this reason, and to avoid misunderstandings, a new word is introduced into the Bible here, penima. It means inside. In this case, it is specifying inside the holy place. This is the first of 13 times the word will be used in the Bible. Again, as I said before, it is the right of the blood which determines what occurs with the rest of the sacrifice. The typology must be maintained in order to ensure the picture of Christ to come. The sons of Aaron failed in this. Verse 19, And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. Almost all scholars tie Aaron's words in with his grief and the grief of his sons as being the reason for not eating the sin offering of the people, something prescribed by the law. However, this is not the case. Aaron will ask a conditional question based on what he has just noted to Moses, which is that the sons had offered their sin offering and they had offered their burnt offering before the Lord. And further, they had done it before, before Nadav and Avihu had died. The offerings were on behalf of all of the sons, not just the two living ones, and yet two of them still died in their sins that same day. How could they eat the sin offering of someone else when they had not attained the state of holiness which kept them from dying in their own sin? How is it possible? It is a giant mark on the Aaronic priesthood coming on the last day of the ordination process which shows its completely fallible nature. It couldn't even perfect its priests As this is so, how could it be expected to perfect those who came to the Lord through the priests? Indeed, something much greater was needed for that to come about. The book of Hebrews, which is the 58th book of the Bible, will explain what that greater than is. 
We will be there before you know it, and it will be explained to you then. So do not miss a single Sunday sermon in the meantime. We're in the third book. We'll be in the 58th book in no time at all. (laughs) Verse 19 continues. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? The answer to his question, now that you know what has happened, is obvious. It's no. If the sin offering and the burnt offerings, which were intended to take care of the sins of the priests, before they tended to the sins of the congregation, were tainted by what occurred, thus meaning that they were also tainted, then how could they take on the sin of the people in order to purify them? Aaron's logic is impeccable, and it shows us how vastly inferior this priesthood is to that of Christ. Infinitely so. The sin of man could never, never be taken away by the blood of bulls and goats. Case in point, the death of Nadav and Avihu. Add into that the future death of Aaron, and then the death of Moses who performed the installation of Aaron, and you have a completely failed system. However, the system itself is not the failure. It is the people within the system, and within the people is the true failure. Anybody? S-I-N, sin. Contemplating David's words of the 51st Psalm shows us the seed of failure contained within the law of Moses itself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's already there. The law of Moses can't take care of it. Verse 20 finishes our verses today. So when Moses heard that, he was content. The word content is insufficient here. It makes the account sound as if Moses accepted the word as satisfactory and nothing more. The Hebrew says, Vayishma Moshe veyetav be'anav, and heard Moses and it was well-pleasing in his eyes. There was a failure within the law and that failure was corrected by what Aaron had done, at least as far as it could be corrected in this regard. When Moses realized the astuteness of Aaron in regards to his solemn duties, he wasn't just content. Rather, he was well pleased. Where the law had broken down, the high priest had readjusted and overcome. It is a look back on the fall of man and a look forward to the greater high priest who would correct that fall. The law of the Garden of Eden had broken down. The true high priest, our Lord Jesus, had corrected that failing. Surely, when God the Father saw what had been wrought in Jesus Christ and his cross, it was well-pleasing in his eyes. The question for each of us concerning chapter 10 is directed at the first seven verses, and it concerns the tragedy which befell Nadav and Avihu. Adam Clark defines the parameters they used for their actions for us, and then he explains how we can either follow them or follow the right path. Here's what he says. Nadav and Avihu would perform the worship of God not according to his command, but in their own way. And God would not only not receive the sacrifice from their hands, but while encompassing themselves with their own sparks and warming themselves with their own fire, this they had from the hand of the Lord. They lay down in sorrow, for there went out a fire from the Lord and devoured them. What is written above is to be understood of persons who make a religion for themselves, leaving divine revelation. For being willfully ignorant of God's righteousness, they go about to establish their own. That's why I read you those verses at the beginning of this sermon, is because people try to establish their own righteousness through the law of Moses. And it is not about the law of Moses. It is about Christ and his fulfillment of the law of Moses. He continues. He says, this is a high offense in the sight of God. Reader, God is a spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Such worshipers the Father seeketh. The story of Nadav and Avihu highlights to us the impossibility that we could ever reach absolute zero on the sin scale on our own. We are humans existing within the stream of time. We're going this way and we were already conceived in sin. The infection is in us and we can't go backwards in order to reverse the curse. Instead, what we need is something or better someone that can take us from the corrupt physical world which we dwell in and are a part of and lead us to the place where the spiritual can take us to absolute zero sin. 
That someone is Jesus. What Moses, Aaron, and the law that they received and mediated could not do, Jesus Christ could. He was born without the infection. He lived under the law that he gave to Israel. And without becoming infected himself, he died in fulfillment of it, thus ending it. And in its ending, he offers to us his work as a gift, free and clear. There is nothing, there is absolutely nothing we need to do except receive it as the gift that it is. Today is the day, folks. Be reconciled to God through the gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Excuse me, I got a burp there. I want you all to know how absolutely important this chapter is in the book of Leviticus and how absolutely important the book of Leviticus is in understanding the greater work of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews defines it and it explains it to us. But little pieces like this that are completely misanalyzed lead people to think that, oh, Aaron and his sons were just feeling bad for themselves and so they didn't eat dinner. That has nothing at all to do with what's going on here. This is one of the most important precepts in the entire law of Moses is that that sin cannot be taken care of by people that are already filled with sin. They, case in point, the death of their two brothers. They'd already offered for their own sins and yet they died. How could the other brothers take away the sins of the congregation? Impossible. We need the true sin extractor. We need Jesus Christ our Lord. I will say it again and again and again to you. Do not fall back on the law of Moses. Do not let anybody tell you that you must observe a Sabbath or that you must observe circumcision or that you must stop eating pork or that you can't drink alcohol. Listen, it doesn't matter if I drink or if I don't drink. That is not my point here. My point is that you are given vast, vast latitude in your relationship with the Lord. Don't ever let anybody tell you that if you do drink alcohol that you're violating the Lord's standard. You are not. That is up to you how you treat yourself in the presence of the Lord. Okay? If somebody says that you can't drink alcohol and go to heaven, what is that? Control. That's Well, it's works-based salvation. It means I have to do something in order to be saved, but it's controlled by the priest or the pastor or whatever. The entire point of bringing that issue up is not to get people to change their minds about going out and getting drunk tonight. It has nothing to do with it. It is because this is a unified whole, and it must be taken without presuppositions. When I do a sermon, I always set aside everything I think I believe. Case in point, I thought, you know what? I asked Burke here on Thursday before everybody got here. I said, why did Aaron and his sons not eat that meat? And you know what he said? He said what every scholar says. He said, because they felt bad at the loss of their sons. And I said, that has nothing to do with it. And I said, that is what I thought when I started this sermon. I'd read it a million times, and I just assumed that he felt bad about it. And yet the words are telling us something so absolutely important, so important about redemptive history. And people want sermons about how to get a better week. I don't understand that. You want to get a better life, you get into the book of Leviticus. I said it at the very beginning. It is the highlight of the Old Testament to me. Some of you may have heard this and some of you may not have if you weren't here during that sermon. But I was asked in college to do a report on a book of the Old Testament. I could pick any one I wanted. And, of course, I could have gone to the one chapter book of Obadiah and that would have been so simple. And that that, uh, professor, when I said, I want to do the book of Leviticus, had a heart attack. He emailed me and said, what are you talking about? Why on earth would you do that? I said, you have no idea how important this book is. You will, and when I got done, he was elated. He was elated. This is the book right here. You want to understand Jesus Christ, you go back to the law, and then you say, he did it. I don't need this law anymore. Oh, wonderful stuff. Anyway, I didn't give a salvation call, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you very quickly that if you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're going to hell. You need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's your salvation call for the day. Our closing verse is Colossians 2. It's verses 13 and 14. And you, being dead in your trespasses with the uncircumcision of your flesh, speaking to all of you Gentiles out there, he has made alive together with him, meaning Jesus, having forgiven you all trespasses, all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
I read you those verses at the beginning of the sermon, and I've read them to you now again because it is that important that you understand your trespasses and your sins are gone with Jesus Christ. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot stop eating pork and please God. You might please your stomach if you got an allergy to pork, but you're not going to please God by trying to merit his favor in something that Christ has already done. Okay? Next week is Leviticus 11. It's verses 1 through 23. There won't be any eating of crab's claws. No, none of that fun. It's entitled Dietary Laws Part 1. That'll be our 16th Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you this, Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? And I can tell you, that dietary law stuff, you're going to love it. You read those things and you say, I can't eat that and I can't eat that and I can't eat that. What is he talking about? It is going to be completely different than what you're expecting, okay? I assure you of that. Our poem today is called The Sin Problem. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying to his high priest, he was thus relaying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. This thing you shall not do. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy. And between unclean and clean, these things shall certainly be. And that you may teach the children of Israel... All the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses, all the things he did tell. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar also, his sons who were left for them to know. Take the grain offering that remains of the offerings made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. Hearken to this word. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord, for so I have commanded to instruct you. The breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering too, you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons and your daughters with you. For they are your due and your sons due, which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel to you. The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering, according to this word, they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as well by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded, as to you I tell. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was, burned up. Of this he made note. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy? Answer me this, I am praying. And God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord, atonement for the Israelite nation. See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. This you did not do. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place, as I commanded you. Then Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering, you see, and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content upon hearing Aaron's word. Thank you, O God, for such a wonderful word. Thank you for the mysteries which are hidden there. Each that we pull out speaks of Jesus, our Lord. Thank you that in his goodness we too can share. For all eternity we shall sing to you our praise. Yes, from this time forth and for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this precious word. It is something that is so precise. It is so exact. It's it's beyond our ability to remember all of these things. And we just have to struggle through from sermon to sermon, trying to recall one thing or another. But it all ties into one, one final picture Jesus. If we can just remember that every single word keeps pointing us to Jesus, then we are in the sweet spot. And how wonderful that is to know that he came and he fulfilled every one of these types and shadows for us. And he did it without sin of his own. So he came out of the ground and he did it for us. So we will come out of the ground as well. How glorious that is, oh God. Thank you for that promise. 
And certainly we pray for all the people that were mentioned at the beginning of this service. We pray for the poor lady over at Ooh La La who's going through cancer and for all of the people in this congregation, whether extended or uh, here in Sarasota, that are not able to attend or that are traveling or whatever is going on in their lives, we would pray that you would be with them and help them, Lord, and thank you for giving us the prospect of a week ahead where we can be in your presence and praise you and glorify you. Help us to treat you as holy always and to live our lives in a manner which is holy, never adding to your word, never detracting from your word, not inserting our thoughts into it, but drawing your thoughts out of it. Help us to do this so that we will be found acceptable in your sight. Thank you for these things, Lord. Thank you above all for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in his name we pray, amen. Amen.